Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green. This month's podcast is a little different as I was out sick on our recording day, and our co-host, Adam, has left JCPL to become a teen librarian at the Chicago Public Library. We wish Adam good luck in his new position. Many thanks to Chantel Richardson, our customer technology librarian, for filling in for Adam. Chantel and co-host Michael Cunningham sat down to chat about their book selections for the sixth prompt in the Books and Bites Challenge, books that include black joy. You can hear my selection at the end of the episode. Hello, welcome to Books and Bites. This is your co-host, Michael, and this month we have a guest, Chantel. Hey, everybody. So for this month, our prompt is Black Joy. Typically, we see a lot of books that deal with black pain and suffering, so we decided to kind of change it up and show, you know, the, the joy aspect. So... Chantel, um, would you like to maybe give us, share your perspective on Black Joy, what you see when it comes to Black Joy in, in books and fiction? And Yeah, well, when I think of Black or Black Joy, so first part, Black, I usually think of Black Americans, um, which, I mean, it can be anyone. It doesn't have to just be Americans, but that's what I think of when I first hear black. And then for joy, I think of things that bring me joy, which would be love or music or family. So when I was choosing my book, I I would try to look for something that fits any of those criteria. Yeah, that's good. Because a lot, I feel like a lot of fiction focuses on the pain, you know, slavery or Jim Crow segregation. And I don't feel like it seemed like there's a lot that focuses on um, joy and happiness. Yes, that's true. And, you know, a lot of movies are that way, too. Definitely. And I also think it's good that you brought that up. I'll go deeper into it when I get to the section where I'll talk about the book I chose. But there's a section where the characters in the book talk about that like how normally black authors are expected to write about certain topics and it was the ones you just named Over the past few years, one genre that's quickly becoming one of my favorites, rivaling horror, is a relatively small but growing subgenre I like to call Appalachian Noir. A year or two ago, I covered Donald Ray Pollock's The Devil All the Time, and earlier this year, I read David Joy's Where All Light Tends to Go. These books usually involve the darker and more tragic side of Appalachia. One of the exciting new voices of this genre is S.A. Cosby with his crime novel Blacktop Wasteland, which happens to be my selection for this month. The book follows Beauregard Bug Montag. He is a loving father to Darren, Javon, and Ariel, and husband to Kia. He owns a garage, making honest living as a mechanic with his cousin Calvin. But that wasn't always the case. Bug has a past. 
In a previous life, he was known as the best wheelman money could buy in the criminal underworld in and around Red Hill County, Virginia. Even though Bug is on the straight and narrow and owns his own business, he he's barely able to keep his head above water with bills piling up around him. His daughter needs money for college. His mother, who's living in retirement home, is about to be put out on the street. And then to add insult to injury, a new garage in town opens up, cutting deep into his once reliable pool of clients. That is until one day a couple of lowlifes named Ronnie and Reggie Sessions show up on his doorstep to help them out with a job. An easy low-risk heist at a jewelry store with a big payday. All they need is a wheelman. Bug decides 80 grand is way too much to pass up with all the bills coming due. He plans the job out to a T, even busting out his prize 71 Plymouth Duster, but you can't plan for everything. Once they get there, the lady behind the counter had been ready for something like this. And after the shots ring out, one of them is dead and they are speeding away before the cops can catch them. Unknown to them, this door was owned by Lazarus, lazy mother's beau, who sends his two henchmen after the thieves. And once he catches them, he has his own plans for repayment. Cosby's writing is tense yet cinematic with some amazingly vivid chase scenes that'll put some movies to shame. While Bug is put through the ringer, his joy is on full display. The main driving force of Bug throughout the novel is his fierce love for his family and his willingness to sacrifice anything for them, even if it puts them directly in harm's way. Everything Bug does is done for them, making his boys their favorite daddy dinner, putting them to bed, carrying his wife to bed after a hard day's work. There's even a conversation he has with his son, telling Javon to worry about only keeping his head in the books and he'll take care of everything else. If you like this, I also highly recommend his follow-up, Razorblade Tears, about two fathers who begin a quest of vengeance after they discover that their sons, who recently wed, were executed in broad daylight. So I pair this with a delicious Richmond, Virginia staple called a Sailor Sandwich, a city located near Red Hill County and mentioned several times throughout the story. This grilled sandwich calls for rye bread, spicy brown mustard, knockwurst, pastrami, is Swiss cheese and is and is as delicious as it sounds. You can find the recipe at tasteofthesouthmagazine.com. Yeah, I took a look at the sandwich and it, man, it's making me hungry right now. I'm just looking at it. <laughs> oh, I know. I was like, I can't believe I've never heard of this sandwich before. And yeah, it looks like it has sausages on it sausage, too with pastrami, pastrami mustard, mm-hmm. and it's it's not too hard to make. But I I definitely recommend trying it yeah it's got like uh the way it's made uh multiple layers of bread mm-hmm. oh yeah it's stacked real high so um yeah it takes them you gotta smash it down real good My suggestion for a book that includes Black Joy is Seven Days in June by Tia Williams. It is from Reese Witherspoon's book club, and it's pretty cool because I didn't even know Reese Witherspoon had a book club. Um, The two main characters in the book are Eva Mercy and Shane Hall. Um, They fell in love 15 years ago when they were 17. They basically spent seven days together before he broke her heart. Now it opens with Eva and she's 32 years old and she's a best-selling vampire witch 
erotica writer. And then Shane, he's an award-winning literacy author. So they're both writers, but kind of two totally opposite genres. Shane is the kind of writer that Eva originally had always wanted to be. Eva did not expect for her fluff genre to take off, but now she's a fan favorite among upper-class white women. So Eva's on her 15th novel from the Curse series. So that's the name of the series for her vampire erotica versus Shane. He usually writes one novel every four years. So he gets to take a break and just live off, you know, his earnings. Both are experiencing writer's block for varied reasons. Shane has experienced writer's block for addiction. And then she's experiencing it because she self-harms. She cuts. So we have to dig into why are they doing this or what caused it? Shane was in foster care as a child, and now he's part of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's been clean for two years. Eva is a divorced single mom of a 12-year-old named Audrey. When Eva met her ex-husband, Troy, he was an animator. They dated for six weeks, and then they were married. Audrey was born seven months later, and then pretty, pretty soon after her birth, Eva's migraines worsened. So at one point, Troy, her ex-husband, said, I wanted a wife, not a patient. And from there, Eva just made the choice for him. She chose divorce and uh, they basically divorced whenever Audrey was 19 months old and Eva never looked back. So back to Shane. During his breaks from writing, Shane's been teaching at various schools just one semester at a time. And it started off with him doing private schools. But then he learned that he actually prefers the underprivileged areas. And whenever he teaches there, he always falls deeply in love with uh, the troubled students. He like looks out for them. Even when he moves on to the next school, he always follows up and sets up a plan for those troubled students. So one in particular is a student named Ty. And he's a eighth grader and kind of big. And basically he gets into fights a lot. But one thing that he's actually secretly passionate about is planets. So before uh, Shane leaves for the weekend, because he's about to go to an awards um, event, he wanted to check in with Ty and make sure, you know, he lets him know, I'm not leaving you. So basically when he was talking to him and telling him bye, he gives Ty a mantra to recite, which basically he wants him to, anytime he thinks he's about to get into a fight, think of the eight planets and just recite that. And that'll help him to fight the urge. But then it goes into, at the end of that chapter, it goes into naming previous students that Shane has gotten attached to. So from Ty to Diamond to Marisol to Rashad, basically in every city he goes, there's always one kid that's got that special part of in his heart. And basically he promises himself that he's always going to follow up with them. He promises himself that his love for them will not vanish like how he did her. And when they say her, we know he means Eva. So it's it's kind of a flashing back plus foreshadowing to what happened, you know, 15 years ago for seven days and what's going to happen in this next seven days of the present. So this week, Eva ends up uh, getting surprised because she's at a literary event. She's on a panel in Brooklyn, New York. And lo and behold, guess who ends up being there? Shane. So he's there and there's all kind of other like their peers around them. Nobody knows they had a secret romance all those years ago. So at first they try to pretend like everything's fine, like they don't even know each other, but the chemistry is undeniable. So it turns out as we keep reading the book, They've been writing to each other through their characters in their books. So that is intriguing in itself to just like make you want to, you know, read more about that. What were the messages that they were sending to each other? 
So Seven Days in June tells an excellent story of black life, mental health concerns, womanhood, the passion to write, and modern motherhood. It's funny. Eva wears Wonder Woman panties. Um, One chapter is titled Single Mom Superhero. So I really love that. There's a fine line between romance and heartache. It explores how childhood trauma can linger into adulthood. As a result of an attempted sexual assault from her past, Eva sometimes self-harms. So that was a question I had early on. Why is she doing that? Then I learned um, why. Eva grew up with her beautiful mom, Genevieve, bouncing from man to man uh, that would provide for them. So as her mom got older... You know, she's still beautiful, but she's getting older. And, and that's the thing with women. As we get older, sometimes the um, the gifts be- became less and less from the men. And some of the men, you know, they'll still provide for her, but it might be a less fancy a- apartment. And then the men also became meaner and, and more abusive to Eva. And there's one scene where one of the mom's boyfriends tries to attack Eva and hits her in the head. So that makes me wonder, is that what caused her migraines? You know, and so I won't tell you uh, yay or nay because I want you guys to read it. But I felt inspired by hope while reading how the characters cope. It's refreshing how uh, psychs can mend and relationships can resolve pain. You know, even though you've been through something rough, there can be positives that can help you through it. I do enjoy stories of star-crossed lovers and artistic fulfillment. You know, ways that music or writing or just art in general can be your passion and be your therapy. So there's another chapter, and this is the one that I alluded to in the beginning when Michael was uh, talking about um, different things that were expected of when we think of black this, black that, or even Hispanic this, Hispanic that. So there's a chapter called fun, black, and then the S word. (laughs) Um, In this chapter, the panelists discuss how black authors are expected to write about trauma, oppression or slavery because these are marketable black tropes. And often publishers struggle to see them as having the same funny, whimsical experiences that every human has. There's no room for fun black topics. So that's one thing that the authors, you know, were complaining about, but they're not giving up. Their their goal is to change that and you know that's a positive of Eva's even though it might be considered fluff genre at least she gets to have fun with those topics and it's not the hysterical typical things that we think of next it deals with Eva how she has an invisible disability that she hides from her fans she's been suffering from migraines since she was young and now struggles to manage them without revealing her chronic pain to the public so there's one scene where she's at like a book signing with her fans and it was just too much for that day so she leaves you know quickly to make it seem like she needs to go make a phone call but actually she was about to have an attack and so she rushes into the bathroom and self-medicates real quickly without anyone knowing basically the only people that know about her pain is her daughter and her best friend but the good news is in the book as she's bonding and reconnecting with Shane she finally finds a doctor who properly medicates her Seven Days in June exemplifies Black joy on so many levels, from Eva's wonderful relationship with her daughter to celebrating her Creole ancestry. Um, there's a matriarch lineage with her grandmother and her great-grandmother, Clotide and Delphine, to her witty friendship with her book publisher, Cece. So that's the other one that knows about her pain. Um, her daughter, Audrey, and then her book publisher, Cece, they'll you know help take care of her when times are bad and then to her mature reconnection with Shane Eva and Shane proved to be truly soulmates 
to pair with this romantic tale, I suggest Snickerdoodles. Why did I choose it? Early on in the book, when she's at one of the book signings, uh, they're feeding her. Um, she and the fans are enjoying Snickerdoodles. Now, when I say enjoying, they're kind of stuffing them in her mouth. But um, it's the 15th anniversary of her book, Cursed. She's at a book gig. And then um, Snickerdoodles is on the Cuffs Plus Cookies menu because it was kind of like erotica. Um, so anyway, from there, I chose it. And I got the recipe from, let me see, where did I get it from? Yeah, modernhoney.com slash the best snickerdoodle cookie recipe. <laughs> so if you go to Modern Honey, you'll find it. And that's my book for Black Joy, Seven Days in June. You can't go wrong with snickerdoodles. Yeah. I love snickerdoodles. You know, I never ate them as a kid, but as an adult, you know, they, they are pretty tasty. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I get them at family reunions and holidays a lot. Yeah, I was reading about it. I think they said it's the most one of the most popular cookies for like cookie uh, for uh, Christmas time. My book is Mr. Loverman by Bernardine Evaristo. I've had the audiobook of Mr. Loverman bookmarked on Hoopla for quite a while, probably ever since 2019, when Bernardine Evaristo won the Booker Prize for her novel Girl, Woman, Other. I'm glad I finally listened to Mr. Loverman. It broke the audiobook drought I'd been experiencing and actually made me look forward to my commute. Like Chantel, I usually think of Black Americans when I think of Black Joy, but Mr. Loverman is about British Black Joy. The main narrator is Barrington Walker, a dapper 74-year-old man who, in 2010, still wears suits and sock garters most days. Barry, as he's usually called, is originally from Antigua, but moved to Hackney, London with his wife Carmel when they were young. Early on in the novel, we learn that Barry and his wife are not on the best of terms, to put it mildly. She harbors deep-seated rage at him because she thinks he's been having affairs with women all through their marriage. However, the truth is that Barry is monogamous just not with Carmel, or with another woman. Barry has been having an affair with his best friend Morris since they were both schoolboys back in Antigua. Morris has been trying to convince Barry to leave Carmel for years, but Barry has been afraid of his wife's two daughters and community's reactions. His wife is a conservative Christian, as are most of their friends from Antigua. His oldest daughter, Donna, is a single mother who disapproves of everything Barry does and is jealous of his fondness for her younger sister, Maxine, a fashion designer. But despite all that, Barry thinks he may finally be ready to divorce Carmel and live his remaining days with the love of his life. This book has its fair share of family drama. Barry experiences racism from white British people, and he experiences homophobia from his own family members and community. However, Barry and Morris share a deep love and a sense of humor that carries them through life's difficulties. 
I laughed out loud as they bantered back and forth, teasing each other. There is also joy in the tender sex scenes between the two men, scenes that are even more subversive because they involve senior men. When's the last time you read sex scenes between people over 65 years old? Although the book is mostly narrated from Barry's point of view, we hear Carmel's side of the story as narrated through the voice of her dead mother. It turns out that Carmel has some secrets too, though she hides them behind her religion and the bitterness she feels over her relationship with Barry. In the audiobook, Robin Miles narrates Carmel's mother, while Ron Butler narrates Barry. I can't speak to the accuracy of their Antiguan accents, but I certainly enjoyed listening to them. Carmel is an excellent cook, and Barry praises her skills throughout the novel, even suggesting that she open her own restaurant. One Sunday dinner sounds especially delicious. Quote, She's already baked the macaroni cheese that just needs to be warmed up, Barry says. Coleslaw is chilling in the fridge, all crunchy with apples and carrots to temper the spices of the curry. When she comes back from church, she will probably fry some plantain just the way I like it. Browned, crisp, slightly burnt at the edges, but soft and succulent inside. Learn more about the food of Antigua and Barbuda in the library database A to Z World Food. The database provides information about the country's food culture, and it includes recipes for some of the dishes Barry mentions, such as Ducana, a boiled sweet potato dumpling. The seafood salad with shrimp, scallops, lobster, sweet potato, papaya, and avocado sounds particularly yummy. And of course, any get-together with Barry and Morris would not be complete without some rum to spice things up. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. For more information about the Books and Bites reading challenge, visit our website at jesspublib.org forward slash books hyphen bites. Our theme music is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. Find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com. Thank you.